Welcome to the Playground Podcast. I'm Chris Byrne with my co-host and cohort, Richard Gottlieb, on the keys as per usual. And this is the Playground Podcast. We are brought to you by Global Toy Experts, the Toy Guy, and Beacon Media Group. And we are going to have some real fun today. We're going to play a lot of games. We are joined by Ilan Lee, who is one of the co-founders of Exploding Kittens. And if you haven't played Exploding Kittens what are you waiting for? I love playing this with my nephew and his friends and my brother just rolls his eyes, but it's really, it's really a great game. So much, so much fun, so many great game mechanics, and we're going to get into that. But Alon, welcome. Thank you. And, and why don't you start out by telling us, how did you get here? Yeah, well, first, thank you so much for having me. Um, I love the comment about you love playing the game and you get eye rolls because I tend to get about those two reactions in 50-50 proportion. So uh, you're tracking well there. Um, how did I get here? Let's see. I started... Um, my whole background is in uh, digital. So I started doing um, right out of college, doing special effects for movies, then started working on video games. I worked uh, at the Xbox for a long time. And then one day just thought, okay, my job is to put kids in front of screens. Therefore, I am part of the problem. <laughs> and um, after that realization, honestly, within two weeks, I resigned from Microsoft. Uh, I was the chief creative officer there for the Xbox uh, studios and just thought uh, enough. I need to, I want games to be not a kid staring at a screen. I want games to, to feel like um, they felt when I was a kid, like my memories of games are playing games with all my siblings and laughing and joking and throwing food and cheating and you know doing all that fun <laughs> stuff. And, and that was missing from, from staring at a screen. So I thought, all right, time to become part of the solution instead. And part of the solution was one of the biggest Kickstarter campaigns of all time, uh, $8.7 million in 30 days to create Exploding Kittens. And it was a lot of, at the time, people were going, what's Exploding Kittens? I remember when it was going on, we were going, what is Exploding Kittens? Is that nice? Are we, what is, what's going on with that? <laughs> and then, and then you play the game. And I love playing this game because for especially for younger people of Gen Z, and uh, it's it allows you to be aggressive and kind of nasty and compete, but not in a not in a negative way. It's just it really yeah. is. There's a lot of laughter when people play this game. Yeah, it all goes back to those those childhood memories. If you, it, my mantra first behind that game and now behind all our games is like, games should not be entertaining. Games should make the people you're playing with entertaining, right? Like I love you, you, that. Games, games that try to be entertaining, they work so hard and they often fail and you're like an audience member. But when you play a game, you're a participant. So why shouldn't the game... The game should sidestep the spotlight and point the, the spotlight directly at you, the player. And, and that's really the idea. You say that like um, when you play this game, there's that kind of fun betrayal going on. I'm going to phrase that a different way, um, mostly sort of a, as a little pat on the back to myself um, for saying the the game was designed to get out of the way of you having a good time. Every card, if you look at it very closely, instead of the cards trying to entertain you, the cards, each one creates an interaction between two players at the table. And so by playing a card, you're really engaging in a conversation with someone else at the table. And to me, that's what all great games should be designed to do. 
And that that's consistent with Brian Hirsch, who created Out of Context and some other great games of the of the mid eighties, who always said that that games are social lubrication. So you can actually he was talking about adult games at the time because that was the heyday of Pictionary and Out of Context uh, yeah. and Taboo. But he said you can put people who don't know each other across the table from one another and suddenly they're having a social experience. Isn't that incredible? And and it almost doesn't matter your personality type is, you're an introvert, you're an extrovert, you like crowds, you don't like crowds, you know the people, you don't know the people. It's a tool set to make the people around the table the entertainment. And a game almost drags you into those kinds of interactions, whether you want to be there or not. And that's the magic. That's why I fell in love with, with games. That's why I keep building them. And one of the things you say in, in a video, you, ta you talked about developing games with your daughter, and we're going to get into that in a moment, is that the idea you want to play it again. And that's, that's yeah. key to a game. A absolutely key. I, I remember when we first started testing games, we did what all the other companies did. We, we, would, we would set a bunch of people down around the table and we have them play the game. And then when they're done playing the game, okay, now we've got 25 questions to ask you. And did you understand the setup? And was this piece appealing? And did you like the theme? And all this garbage that I realized, like, I don't care about any of this. I don't care what you think about the setup or if the instructions had five words to make. Like, none of that matters. Now, when we test games, we finish a game and we ask one question. Do you want to play again? That's awesome. And a game's ready, right? A game's ready when everybody says yes. Yeah. And a game's not ready when people say no. And that's when you start to work on it. So it's, it's, it's everything you'd expect from game night just brought into a testing environment, which lets us make those great games that are ready for your game night. So I'm going to express an opinion and you don't I'm not going to ask you to respond to it. And then I'm going to ask you Richard's question, because one of the things I loved about Exploding Kittens when my when my nephew actually sat down with me and his friends and we played was that you do want to play it again. And it really is. It brings people closer as opposed to my opinion only something like Cards Against Humanity, where the competition is to see who can be the meanest. It's entertaining one time you play it, but it's like, yeah, I got it. I got it. So uh, you don't need to respond to that. That's just my opinion. Uh, but Richard has a great question. Uh, he says, the name, I'm going to read this exactly because this is so Richard. The name Exploding Kittens is evocative and provocative, which makes it minimally vocative. Which came first, the name or the game? <laughs> so Richard. <laughs> what a great one. Oh, I love it. All right, I'll tell you the, the story behind the name, um, because this speaks to the brilliance of my co-founder, uh, Matthew Inman. So I was working on this game uh, with a mutual friend of ours, Shane Small. And we had been tinkering with this game. We were calling it, um, the first name was Bomb Squad, because it was Russian roulette with a deck of cards, right? The idea is there's a few bad cards in there. You don't want those. Everything else is going to try to help you avoid drawing those bad cards. Last person standing wins. Russian roulette with a deck of cards. And we thought, okay, well, we'll call it, instead of something violent, you know, we'll, we'll tow this weird line. We'll call it Bomb Squad. There's a few bombs in there. Don't draw the bombs. Very straightforward. Um, so the game definitely came first because I was in love with this player-to-player -player interaction. Every card creates an interaction between two players. Awesome, awesome, awesome. Everyone we tested it with really loved it. But no one was really excited about the name. The name was always just the sort of thing like, okay, yeah, cool. Let's play Bomb Squad again, whatever. Ooh, now let's play. Play, play, play. Who cares about the name? And then I met uh, Matthew Inman, who's the creator and author of The Oatmeal, uh, the online comic series. And I've been a huge fan of his forever. And um, we sat down. He said, I hear you have a game. Can I please play it? I was like, 
I actually met him on a vacation. We were in Hawaii with a bunch of mutual friends. I was like, no, you can't play this game because we're in Hawaii. <laughs> we got to go play in the water. Let's go, you know, surf, build sandcastles, drink, eat, all the fun stuff. And um, he said, look, I-, I love games. Please, please, please. How about we just, we'll play for 10 minutes. Just show me your game, 10 minutes. I was like, okay, fine. We sit down. I show him the game for 10 minutes. We finish the game. I ask my silly question. Do you want to play again? Of course I want to play again. So we play again, 20 minutes. 30 minutes. We yeah. play again, again, and again, and like two hours have gone by and we're in Hawaii. We're in paradise. And all we're doing is playing this silly little card game over and over and over again. And, and he's getting better at it. He's, he's learning all the nuances of the game and he's falling in love with this thing. And at the end of our session, he said, look, two things. One, can I please be your partner in this endeavor? Because I have been searching for a place to put my art for such a long time. I wanted, I've always wanted to build a game. I've never found one that was fun enough. And this would be such an incredible opportunity for me. Please, please consider uh, making me a partner. Um, to which, by the way, if the oatmeal ever asks if he can be your partner in anything, your answer is yes. Hell yes. Please, yes, yes. Um, so, but his second point was he said, uh, also, we have to change the name. Because it's so obvious that you're scared of bombs. Yes, yes, bombs are scary. Yes, there's bombs in the deck. Yes, you're trying to avoid the bombs. And therefore, who cares? What if instead, the thing that you were scared of, the thing you feared the most, were cute, adorable, fuzzy little kittens? And we called the game Exploding Kittens instead of Bomb Squad. And that was it. Like There was no debate. There was no thought. He said those two words. And I said, hell yes, let's go. And we went. It's interesting because games and toys always reflect the culture and some level of the zeitgeist, especially when they take off as exploding kittens have. And there is something so naughty about the name exploding kittens or and, and so funny at the same time that it really is. It really captures the sense of humor of today's young yeah. people. I, I just like that. The, you know, it's it's nasty. It's funny. And, you know, it's not real. Yeah, yeah. We the the one uh, sort of landmine we walked on that we had to be really careful about was we knew that the name Exploding Kittens was, as you say, provocative and evocative, and and it, it was just it was such an exciting name. Everyone we told it to was, "Tell me more. I want to know what do you, what do you mean, Exploding Kittens?" And and off we went. But there were those who, of course, had concerns about, "Wait, is this cruelty to animals? What's going on here?" And we had to be very careful to say, well, not only are we huge animal lovers, we all have kittens, we all have dogs, we donate huge amounts of money to, to animal charities, but we had to say the kittens in this game are not exploding. In fact, the whole point of the game is that the kittens should not explode. You have failed miserably if you let a kitten explode. Protect them, defend them. That's the whole point of the game. Do not let a kitten explode. Do not lose the game. That's the only bad thing you can do in the whole game. And we had to, especially in our Kickstarter campaign, we had to spend a lot of time making sure that message came across. And I got to admit, to this day, we still have to do a lot of that through uh, some people who write into us with concerns about where the name came from. Um, I would say we convert like 80% of them into showing them like, hey, this is all about fun. This is all about family. Here's our origins. Here's what we're trying to do. Here's where our money goes, you know, all that stuff. Um, but there are still some who say, exploding kittens don't like it don't like you end of story right i i have no capacity for abstract thought yes <laughs> you said that not me i said that 
Oh my gosh! When I was at CBS, we would get letters from from people about like our commercials for Trouble that we we showed the the bubble popping in Trouble, you know, the Popomatic, yeah. and yeah, kids playing right. on a school bus, and then the bus would would pop at the end of it. I got letters saying that we were not advocating for safe bus safety. So it was incredible, <laughs> incredible. <laughs> I, I, yeah. <laughs> Every, everyone's got their opinions and through the magic of the internet, everyone gets to express those opinions now. So you have entered in a new venture, which I got to see the games and I've played the games now, which is called Kitten Games, which I think is hilarious. And Thank you. you developed this with your daughter, Avalon. And one of the things that you said in a video that you did about it was it took you a year and a half. And I love that because <laughs> I, I have had so many games in concept sent to me that have the game mechanics are out the window. The concept might be fun, but, but you invested the time. Tell us about that process. Yeah. So, um, the process was like, I had a, I had a daughter, you know, okay. You know, you hear like, um, I remember growing up Eddie Murphy, huge comedian. He was rough and abrasive and edgy. And, and, and he had an album called raw and it was like, you know, the first time we'd really heard swearing in a comedy album, it was, it was, it was unbelievable. And then he disappears for a few years and he comes back and he's doing kids films and everyone scratches their heads saying, what, what the hell happened there? Um, I'm about to tell you that same story. <laughs> I'm going to make kids games. Um, but the, and the reason is the same. Uh, I had had kids, and um, when my daughter turned four, I took her to the store, and I'm like, "You're finally four. We can now play games together. Let's go buy as many games as look interesting. You, we're going to take them home. We're going to play games. You can finally relate to me. We're going to have this great, amazing time." And uh, it was not that. Uh, <laughs> those games were horrible. Like just mind numbing boring, formulate, like formulate to the point where you're not making any decisions. You, you spin a spinner, move your piece. Who cares if you're even in the room? A computer can do that. Like, why, why are we even trying to have an experience here? Because none of us are learning anything. None of us are getting better. There's no sense of mastery. There's no sense of competition. There's no sense of entertainment. Everything about these games felt broken to me. And um, my daughter kind of looked at me and she can tell when I'm not having a good time. And she kept saying, like, can we play again? Because she's four and this is here. Here we are interacting. And I was like, Ugh, only if we really have to. Like, I'd <laughs> much rather play hide and seek, go play tag. Like, let's go do things together instead of this boring, monotonous, horrible thing we're doing. And she said something really brilliant. She, you know, we, we raise her to be a, a hacker and a tinkerer and, and to always question everything. And she said, why don't we fix it? And um, that was a moment where my brain kind of exploded. And I, and I realized like this, this moment right here, I will bet is exactly what happened with some of the founders of Pixar. They probably looked at the movie industry for kids and said, this is boring and monotonous and horrible. And it, maybe it's fun for kids, but the parents, the grownups who have to take their kids to these movies are not having a good time. And they fixed it and went on to change the world. And I thought, my daughter just said, let's fix it. And I want to have that same experience as what I think the founders of Pixar had. Like, this doesn't have to be boring and monotonous. And the people taking their kids to the movies, the adults taking their kids to these game experiences can also have fun. And I shouldn't have to let her win. And when she says, let's play again, I want to jump out of my chair and say, hell yes, let's play again. And so we sat down and we started designing games together. 
And she started drawing and scribbling characters she loved. And I would show her mechanics. And when I say it took 18 months, it really did because um, we had to learn a lot from each other. And, and mostly what that means is I had to learn from her. I had to learn like what's going to grab her attention. And here's a, here's a little core gameplay loop that I enjoy. What parts of that are interesting to her? And um, how often does she have to feel the spotlight is on her versus on me? And does she, is she engaged when it's somebody else's turn? And you know, all these little, little things, I, we had to hack into a four-year-old's brain. And luckily, I had an expert on four-year-olds right there with me for 18 months while we built these things. And at the end of it, we had about 12 games, and we narrowed it down to four that were truly, truly fun, that satisfied the criteria. She's having a great time. These games look beautiful. And when she says, Daddy, can we play again? I say, yes, please. And and Richard points out that, you know, one of the virtues of a well-designed family game is that the parent has to follow the same rules as the child, that you don't have to cheat to lose. Yeah. You, can actually, yeah, right. you can actually engage on the same level. And, and that's to the point of, of, you mentioned before, mastery, learning mastery, because some of your new games have a little bit of strategy and yep. that it's stuff that kids can can learn as they go along. Yeah, it's so cool. There's there's two really interesting points about that. One is I when we play these games, I watch my daughter learn a little bit of math, a little bit of strategy, a little bit of logic, a little bit of statistical analysis. Like it's amazing to see she realize that's happening. But when she's got two potential moves in front of her, she's learning, ah, this A is better than B. And I know why. And I don't even need to verbalize it. But nine times out of 10, I'm going to choose A instead of B because now I understand. This game has un unfolded itself to me. And that's so beautiful to watch. The other thing that is incredible that I'm so proud of is layered on top, all of, on top of all of that, the simplicity, the fun, is she can take these games, and I've seen this happen, takes them to her friends and she explains to them how to play. Oh, that's great. And that is oh, awesome. it's so beautiful. I've never seen that before ever, ever. And I, I just sit there just with this stupid, goofy grin on my face watching the entire time because we built this thing together and it is like by all criteria, anything I can think of, this is a success. Right. And, and it is. And one of the things that that anybody who works in the game business knows is your players are your best advocates. When they begin to evangelize for your game, then it takes on a life that, you know, I wanted to play with you. We had such a good time. I need to buy that game so I can play it with other people. That's the heartbeat of a game right there. That is that is how it moves uh, from generation to generation, from player to player, family to family. Yeah, if you can hit that, your game will become a living thing. The kitten games are really there's four in the in the line. They're very different. They are just super fun. I mean, I I definitely like my parents might be Martians uh, because because again, it's like kids love just just saying that is fun, right? Just saying yeah. that is fun. It's kind of like password, but with a different different twist. Yeah, if I could, I'm going to geek out on that game for Please. a little bit because I've never seen anything like it before. So. We have a game out there called um, My Parents Might Be Martians. Uh, sorry, that's the kid's game. The original is called um, Poetry for Neanderthals. And the way Poetry for Neanderthals works is very simple. You divide up into two teams. Uh, when it's your turn, you have a deck of cards. Each card has one word on it. You're trying to get the people on your team to say the word on the card. The only rule, is, or, sorry, as many as you can in 60 seconds. The only rule is you can only speak using single syllable words. 
Very simple game. So much fun because regardless of what you think of how you think you're presenting yourself, you sound like a caveman. You have no choice. (laughs) Your grandma sounds like a caveman immediately. It's so fun and so funny. And you just go back and forth uh, trying to get through as many cards as you can, just like taboo, but a different set of restrictions. So when I wanted, so we started, I started playing that game with my daughter and realizing there's a problem. Syllables is just too difficult of a concept for her. When I say you can only speak using single syllable words, she has to speak so slowly and so carefully and she messes up and she doesn't understand why she messed up. And I realized like, this doesn't work. Like I cannot put the same requirements on me as I put on her. Like that's just, it's, it doesn't work. And so for the first time in my career, I thought, oh, wait a second. What if we build an asymmetric play pattern? And that's new, especially in kids' games. What if she is playing a different game than I'm playing? What if we have different rules applied to us? And so I sat down with my wife and my daughter and I said, okay, Avalon, look, Avalon, here's what we're going to do. Your mommy and I are going to play this game. We're going to read, we're going to speak, and you have to guess the word we're we're, we're trying to to convey to you, we're we're trying to get you to say. And I'm going to go, and then your mommy's going to go, and back and forth and back and forth, but you are always the guesser. Asymmetric play pattern, right? My wife and I are giving clues. My kid is guessing. And I said, the other rule is you're going to earn a point every time you get a word right. Another way to phrase that is she's earning double the points that either of us are earning. So this does two really interesting things. One, uh, maybe three interesting things. One, the spotlight is always on her. It's always her turn. It's always the kid's turn. They're always guessing. They're always the center of attention. Two, they're always going to win the game because they're always earning points. The parents are actually competing for second place. Um, and, And three, the experience... The kids are having is fun, but the experience the parents are having is totally different because we are not competing to guess words. We are competing to hack our kids. (laughs) That was so cool, right? I need to get my kid to say the word carrot, but I can only speak using single syllable words. Okay. So I start to think like, "Mm, all right, how do I have ah, food you ate last night? not green, right? And, and now she's thinking like, okay, last night, last night, what did I eat last night? And she starts listing them off, right? That's not going to work for every kid, but I'm hacking my kid. We're sharing an experience together. Maybe I can do that faster than my wife can. Maybe my wife can do it faster than I can. It became this really beautiful experience that capitalized on the shared experiences that we each had with our kids, with their friends, with the larger groups that we started eventually playing with. And the kids always won the game and the parents always competed for second place. And we all had this incredible time, even though we were extracting different things from the game. I've never seen that before. It was such a delight to play. I haven't seen that before either. And one of the things that occurs to me as you're talking is, as I was saying earlier, games and toys always reflect the current zeitgeist. And this really reflects the fact that kids and parents, have, especially since the pandemic, have been more connected to one another. When I was growing up, There was kid world and parent world and family world. And kid world and parent world didn't really come together. My parents would say, just go do this. So whatever game we had, and we had lots of games, they weren't engaged in it. They they weren't playing risk with us. They weren't engaged with us except at dinner time, making sure we did our homework and blah, 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 blah. But now the culture is parents and kids are really socializing much more together. So so, That's absolutely right. These are the the most complicated 
designed games I've ever gone through. The process of designing them is so complicated, even though the end result is so simple, because my premise hasn't changed. Games should not be entertaining. Games should make the people who are playing entertaining. And when I'm designing a game for adults or a game for teenagers, I can take a lot for granted there because everyone's having the same experience. When I'm designing a game for kids, the kids have to be having a different experience than the parents, almost by definition. Right. And and I still have to apply that same criteria. The players themselves should be the sources of that entertainment. The game is just a tool set to facilitate that. And that is so hard that that like double whammy of it's got to be fun for them and they provide the entertainment. It's got to be fun for me and I'm providing the entertainment. Holy crap, is that hard. That's why we started with 12 games and eventually published only four of them. One of the other ones is a completely different game. It's more physical involving. It's called, I love saying this, Hurry Up Chicken Butt, because that is such a four-year-old's statement. <laughs> you know? Yep. Yeah. Yep. And, and it's, you get, it's kind of like hot potato and you're jumping around. And then at some point, everybody has to race to touch the chicken butt card. So it's... Very exactly fun. right. It's yeah. It's our take on on hot potato. And and my daughter and I played a lot of hot potato games. This one, uh, this was one we worked with um, Brian Spence, who designed uh, Throw Throw Burrito. And we we all just started like brainstorming, like what does it mean to play hot potato, but make it more physical. No, don't just pass this thing around that's going to explode at some point. Okay, so it's a chicken. It clucks. Eventually, the chicken screams. You don't want to be holding it when it screams. And it's a little electric yeah. toy. But um, we started playing around with this notion of like, okay, what if you're not just allowed to pass it? What if you got to do something before you pass it? And um, we started brainstorming like, okay, so there's got to be a whole bunch of different things. We'll have a deck of cards with all kinds of fun activities. You got to do five jumping jacks or spin around in a circle or make up an imaginary name for everybody or run to the other room and touch a, a chicken button, come back, like all these fun activities. But we never want the game to be the same. So what if you only deal out six of those activities uh, in the middle of the table. Uh, and then on your turn, you shake the chicken, which will, which has a, a little die inside. It's, um, you know, one color shows. That's the activity you have to do. And now you can pass the thing along. So it became this just incredible experience where the game is different every time. You're always doing these fun activities. It's always short, fun, fast, frantic, you know, all that, all that fun stuff for kids. And the extra kicker, my favorite, I have never beat my kids at this game. Never. <laughs> no matter how hard I try, I've never let them win. I have never won. And I'll tell you, part of it is just clever game design in, in the way the challenges are designed. But part of it is kids have an advantage. The absolute core of this game is they can just get up and sit down faster than you can. I don't care who you are. Your kid will beat you at that activity every time and they will beat you at this game. And I want to shift gears and talk a little bit about the trade, the game, the game business overall. Because Richard, Richard yeah. is writing about he's eternally concerned about the monopoly monopoly. They take up so much space on the shelf that there's not sufficient room for new games. Are people playing these games? Or are they just all gifting dog monopoly to somebody who loves dogs? It was just announced that Scrabble monopoly is being released, and there's all kind, there's all there's Scrabble bingo, there's all these other elements of it. How do you break yeah. through? It's it's really hard. I, I I would say it's it's very similar to the movie industry, where most movies are sequels or you know re re licenses of of older products, um, and that's because audiences they they want the familiar, right? They 
you grew up playing Monopoly. When you're going to a store to buy a gift for uh, your niece's birthday or your your kids, uh, you know, whatever kids game night, whatever it is, you buy the thing that is familiar because everything else is risky. It is so hard to break through that. I, I think two things are going on. One is you have to have very good box design. Your box has to stand out and it has to say, trust us. You're going to have a good time. Just just trust us. Um, it's hard to do. Um, but the other thing that's going on right now that um, is encouraging is um, with the invention of Kickstarter and other crowdfunding platforms, the buyers at the big retailers, they're taking more risks. They're saying, okay, look, I know we have to have Monopoly and Uno. We have to, because those are always bestsellers, because that's familiar. But we will also devote a large amount of our shelf space to new exciting things, things that may have been successful on Kickstarter, things from new publishers that we want to take a chance on. And the reality is they're starting to take those chances. So there's more and more opportunity because a lot of them have been big hits like the Exploding Kittens of the World. And that makes it fun. That 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 opens the door for the first time in a long time to go at it yourself and to say, I've got a good game. I've already got a built-in audience because I know how to build that myself on social media. I've got a really good box design. Uh, put this on your shelf, take a risk for a season, and let's see what happens. And more and more, they're willing to say, okay, let's give that a shot. And people are buying the game. They're buying into the experience, as as we've been saying. And your games are like $14.99, $19.99. So they're, they're very reasonable. And thankfully, they're mostly paper and ink, which <laughs> it makes, makes you yep. able to deliver a game at that price point, but it doesn't really matter. You don't need a lot of extraneous pieces that you have to buy molds for if the game between the people, as you say, if you make the people entertaining with just a card, that's a win. That's absolutely right. And and that's that's always at least my goal. Like some of our prototypes start out so elaborate. Like there is a game that we were working on, oh God, maybe five years ago. And the first version of it, I hired an engineer to build this crazy big plastic thing with a, a rotating base and it had marbles floating around it. And there was a buzzer and sound effects. And that's where we started. And very quickly, I realized, okay, just cost of goods of this thing is going to make this like a $200 game. What are we doing here? <laughs> and, but that's where it's fun to start, right? It's right. fun to start with this big, elaborate, crazy thing. And you, and you kind of chisel away at it um, until what you're left with, a game that we're releasing next year, is now just a deck of cards. Nothing else, just a deck of cards. Very easy to play, super fun. But it takes a while. In that case, it took us five years to figure out how do we remove all the plastics? How do we remove all the electronics? How do we remove all the extra parts? Because... Games ought, game design ought to be elegant. It ought to do a lot with a little. And the better we get at this, the smaller and simpler our games get. They don't get less fun. They don't get right. less elaborate. They just do a lot more with less. One of the things about a, a good game is you want to be able to play very quickly after you open the box. You want it to change depending on who you're playing with. Right? That, That's that right. It's a very well different said. game depending on who you're playing with. And then, of course, your key question, do you want to play it again? <laughs> yes. Yes. So, so well said. I, You know, you, you also bring up that point. You want to be able to start playing really quickly. And one of the problems that I've always had with games is nobody wants to read the instructions, right? You sit down with your group of friends, everybody's sitting down, hey, let's play a game. Here's a new game. Tear off the shrink wrap, open the box. 
oh my God, there's 20 pages of instructions. <laughs> oh, okay. So one of the things that we did, which I, I really love, everyone told me this was the world's worst idea when <laughs> we first tried this, was the very first line of the instructions say, hey, don't read these instructions. Reading is the worst way to learn how to play a game. Instead, we made a five-minute video. Here's the link. Go watch the video. It'll be just like we're in the room with you. It'll be that friend who's always willing to read the instructions and then explain it to everyone. We'll be that person. Let us, let us take on that burden. And we've done that for every single one of our games. And literally, the number of plays of those videos is in the hundreds of millions wow. uh, because it's just a better way to play a game. Right. Right, and it's and it's easier, and we we are re-teaching or re-acclimating today's people to learn how to watch a, a video rather than yeah. rather than read to learn how to do it. And, and that's as, right. As Richard said, and I think you kind of touched on this earlier. You were you were with Microsoft, with Xbox, and that was all digital, and now you're completely analog, <laughs> yeah. which is great. That's so weird. And I, I, and I know you intended that, but what's the how has it changed you to be able to do mm. that? I've had to be, I would say that entirely analog is, it's a lot less forgiving. Like, for example, when we, when I used to work on digital games, we would work so hard. You know, these huge teams, hundreds of people, we work for years, we finally get a thing out the door, we realize, oh, we made 4,000 mistakes, no problem, we'll just patch the game, it'll get better and better and better as we go. Working on a card game, it's such a small team, and the thing that goes out the door is it. <laughs> it is final. Like, I don't care how badly you messed up. That is never changing, ever. And that's terrifying. Like, you have to go so quickly. Um, and it's so unforgiving. Like, I, I just... I. I am much more nervous releasing card games than I ever was releasing video games. And that is exhilarating and terrifying all at once. I think it makes for really good products, but I don't want to lie and say this is easy. This is the hardest work I've ever done. It's paying off in great benefits. These games are so much fun and they are really social games. They really are bringing people together. So as I said before we started recording, I could talk to you all day, but we don't have all day. So we're going <laughs> to end this up, and I'm going to ask you the question we're asking every one of our guests on the current season of the Playground podcast. Who was the person or the people in the toy industry who had the most influence on you becoming who you are today? All right, first I have to make a confession. Um, I don't know a lot of people in the toy industry. In fact, <laughs> maybe none. <laughs> um but that's okay. That's okay. I, I mean, you know, in, in early, I, I, I was telling you, I've, I've listened to your podcast so much now. And, and I know in earlier seasons, you, you asked the question, um, you know, tell us a secret. And I remember thinking like, okay, if, if you were to ask me, tell, tell me a secret, my answer to that would have been, you know, don't tell anyone, but as a game designer, as a successful game designer, as a guy who's taught classes in game design, who's given lectures on game design, who's won ridiculous awards on game design, I have never, ever, ever in my life played Dungeons and Dragons. <laughs> ever. That's a great I never. Don't change uh, Yeah, that. right. Right. And, 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 and the reason I bring that up now is related to this other question is like, I am completely a fish out of water here. Like, I don't 
go to the right conferences. I don't know the right people. Uh, I don't read the right books. I don't like, I'm just bad at this. Um, and, and so it's kind of forced me to get good at it in my own personal way. So I'm going to tell you the biggest influence on my life, who I absolutely think is in this industry, but I don't think you will ever think of this person as a member of this industry. That person is Jeff Probst. He is the host of Survivor. Yeah. And over the last decade, I've, I've formed a, a little friendship with him and gotten to kind of get inside of his head. And I'm a huge Survivor fan. I've watched, you know, I, I have that story where I'm like, I watched all the seasons and all that, you know, everything. Um, but getting to know him and learning that not only is he the guy behind everything in that show, but I believe he is probably the best game designer of our generation. He would never think of himself as a game designer. People in the toys and games industry would never think of him in that industry. But that man has a better grasp on what it is like to have an experience as an audience member. He can do that better than anyone I've ever encountered. And as a result, when I pitch ideas to him, when we talk about design, um, and his show is very much a game, so it involves a ton of design, he can look at it so clearly from the perspective of someone who is coming in cold, who has no context, who has no idea how to play, what's in store for them, what happens next. And as a result, the decisions that he makes are better than anyone I have ever encountered. And I'm so inspired by that. I, I want to be like Jeff. I want to look at my own game designs and the experience that people are going to have with them and clear my brain and think, okay, I'm new. I'm brand new. I don't know anything. Why am I going to buy this game? Why am I going to love this game? Why am I going to tell my friends about this game? And he can answer all three of those questions instantly. Takes me a few months, but I'm getting there. <laughs> That's wonderful. I, and he really is a game designer. I mean, that is, Survivor is a game show. And you may feel like a fish out of water, but we're certainly glad you dove in uh, <laughs> into the water. Thank you. Uh, because the games are amazing. Elon Lee is the co-founder of Exploding Kittens. And if you don't know these games, what are you waiting for? Elon, uh, thank you so much for spending the time with us today. Oh, thank you both. This has been such a delight. This is the Playground Podcast with me, Chris Byrne, my co-host and cohort, Richard Gottlieb. We are supported by Global Toy Experts, The Toy Guy, and Beacon Media Group. We'll see you next time.